Well, it's interesting. I really haven't talked about this kind of during the series, but it's amazing to me when I think of the turning points in my life of how the Gospel of Matthew has played a significant portion. I picked six out. Kind of we worked through the last kind of the end of uh, Matthew 25 to 28. We kind of ran out of time when we got to 28. uh, But – and then working back through moments where God spoke to me. And so to, this is different. This last message is different tonight and uh, because it's, it's really the turning point I'm at right now, this very moment. The others are things that God kind of forced me to think about when I was a young man or middle age or parenting. Uh, Paul and I had an incredible afternoon with a few couples that were just talking about the challenges of parenting in the – the teen years, and of course, we just had brilliant wisdom and insight for them. Kind of like, we don't know, <laughs> good luck. But, but we really did ha- have a wonderful time going, this is in God's hands. God, God's part of why we're here and what we're leaving a legacy for our kids is we really believe like God is in control, that he's got this. Just like Lindy, when she said to me before she went to Wagadougou, Dad, I got this because God's God's directed me, and and I'm in control. And I want to say to you, um, I've had as much fun speaking this week as any time. I mean, you guys have just been amazing. And I really believe that when you head out of here Friday morning, I have such confidence that every one of you is going back to a place where Jesus is glorified in your life, where you're blessing people. You're so strategically planted where you are to love and care for people. And so it's been an a truly incredible privilege to share. And so tonight, I want to I wanna talk about the, the gift, the, G, the invitation, the turning point. This would be turning point number six that I'm sharing with you. I actually made a list of 15, and I narrowed it down to six. So maybe if I come back in a few years, I'll, I'll, do, I'll do a few of the other ones. But this is the gift that no Christian wants. This is, this is the gift that stinks. And it's the gift of powerlessness. It's interesting that Jesus wants to offer us something that is so absolutely wonderful. And so the way this, is, the way this has worked out for me is um, when I was 18 and I went to Wheaton, which everybody you know now is the, is the what? Football powerhouse of the Midwest. Yeah, it's funny the first time, wasn't it? Um, and I ended up leading a Young Life Club church ministry, and I led the Young Life Club at Glenbard West High School for 12 years. About for 12 years. I had 12 leaders from Wheaton, led it for four years, and it was absolutely delightful. And then I was a youth director for seven years, then I went to seminary, and then I, I worked with another guy for three years, and then launched Kensington in 1990 and ha- had the privilege of leading it for 30 years. And so most of my life has been marked by, hopefully in a nice way, not always, telling other people what to do, being the boss, giving instructions, setting, setting course. You know, we did, um, between our four campuses that we own, you know, we did a lot of building projects, probably probably $70 million of building projects. And, and I got to be in, and it was really fun. And it's fun to be the king, you know, of your, whatever your little domain is. And as a parent, right, as a mother or a father, there's this window when your kids are young and they listen to you and they engage you, and it's like it's good to be king, right? But Jesus has a way of reminding us that we all, at certain points, some of it happens when we're young, 
Some of it happens through infirmity. Some of it happens through the loss of the career that you thought you were going to have or a division in your church. But we all find ourselves at some point where Jesus is saying, hey, I'm, I'm offering you the gift of powerlessness. Like you've just stepped in to a situation that you don't have any control. So last year, after leading Kensington for 30 years and having a ball, I mean, it, it was so great. It was so fun. I stepped down. I'm still, I'm still kind of adjunct staff. We're still working. They're still working through succession issues. But I, I mean, I still preach and I'm meeting with people, leading trips around the world and stuff. But I've, I haven't been in one decision making meeting for over a year. And to be honest with you, I love it. I'm actually, I love that. But what's interesting is I've reached a point in my life where nobody listens to me except you guys this week. Uh, but Paul and I, we realize we've come to a place where we're really not in charge of anybody. Our kids are really more teaching us than we're teaching them. They're 35 to 27, and we've, we've really stepped into the position of being learners from them. And so it's very interesting where Jesus says, how do you receive the gift of powerlessness? How does Jesus talk about this? Because if you go to Isaiah 53, which we're not going to teach from tonight, the whole thing is that Jesus came and basically shed every vestige of power that he had. I was just talking to Don Hallett. By the way, in all the years where I've talked about fighting forest fires uh, out west, Don, wave your hand, Don. Don's in the back. Don's actually done this all over the United States of America. He's actually a real, he's one of the real deals, you know, uh, where he actually fought these fires. And I have not never talked to this side about it that much, but these were the roughest people I've ever been around in my life. And uh, it was it was it was quite an eye opener. And I remember feeling like a little baby in front of these people. It's it's no fun to feel powerless. And I want to say, when the moments where I realized God was asking me to step into a new place of more humility, more of listening to others. That a part of it, I didn't like it. About three years ago, I took my top leadership at the church and I recast the vision of what we were doing. And I remember vividly sitting in this room with about 20 of our top leaders and I could see on their faces that nobody was buying it. And it hadn't happened to me in 27 years. 27 years, like, we're going to do this. We're going to start another campus. We're going to do it. We're going to start 10 churches this year. We're going to do it. We're going to do global parties, indigenous church planning. Everybody's like, come on, we're going to go. And it was the first time in 27 years, like, okay, guys, are you with me? And it's like Gull Lake last February. Crickets, nothing happening. And that was when I went, part of the time I went back to Paul and said, it's time. It's time for me to step out and hand to a new generation. And here's what was so humbling about it. When it came time, I told the leaders, I said, hey, it's time to begin the succession in real seriousness. I'm stepping aside. I'm handing off to an interim leader. And here's what I hoped for. I really was hoping there was going to be like several dozen of the top leaders going, oh, man, Steve, 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 wait. We, we, can't, we can't make it without you. You know, you, you are our guy. You've, been, you've led us for 30 years. And literally every key person in my life was like, yeah, it's a good decision. I'm like, isn't is there anybody that doesn't think this is a good decision? I mean, this is really humbling. This is not funny. <laughs> this whole thing of feeling powerless. And so, but here's what I want you to know. 
there is a freedom that I've experienced this year that I haven't that I haven't tasted in maybe ever in my life, and it's the freedom where I've talked about it earlier this week, where Jesus is all you need. And I can't. And I've got a couple of scriptures. I've got w- one scripture this whole week outside of Matthew. It's John twenty-one. And I want you to look at it on the screen with me. And obviously, this is not what I'm experiencing, but it has the principles where, uh, again, Peter is asking Jesus about what's going to happen with his life. Jesus has just restored him. And and by the way, this is right after Jesus uh, appeared to them on the shores of Galilee. Remember, Peter, uh, Peter and John go in, they meet Jesus, and Jesus restores Peter. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? And if you go back and look at that, it's such an interesting passage in the original language because when Jesus says, do you love me? Peter's first answer is, Lord, I'm fond of you. Like, you're a really good friend. <laughs> Which is totally different than what he'd been saying for you know, the whole time he was following Jesus because he was humbled and he had been stripped of all of his sense of self-sufficiency. But listen to what Jesus says, Peter this is what you can expect with your life. He says, I, I, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, what did we say the contract was? What does the contract read that you have with Jesus? It's two words. Follow me. That's the, only con- that's the only contract you get in this journey. But this of what Jesus describes to Peter is the beautiful place where everyone is eventually invited by Jesus. I remember the last six months of my dad's life. My dad was a powerful man. He was, uh, he was a legend in the southeastern United States as a duck hunter and as an outdoorsman. Uh, when he wrote a, a memoir book of his life, he ended up selling 10,000 copies because people loved him and loved what he did, and he was—he he preached in every church in this where he was ever invited. I remember as a kid getting up at three thirty in the morning on Sunday morning and driving to Southern Mississippi, and Dad would speak at a church of twenty people. But the potlucks were really good, you guys. The payoff—the payoff after the service was always worth it. And for the last six months of my dad's life, I would. I would go to to Memphis every other week and help my mom take care of him. And man, there's something, isn't it, when you wipe your dad's bottom? That's a really, that's a moment you know you just transitioned to a new way of living. I mean, I remember my dad, I remember my dad when I was 18 years old. We were driving in downtown Memphis and two gangs were having a fight at, at the at the downtown River Park. We were going by. We were on our way to to Arkansas. And I remember my dad whipping the car into park and wading out into this. And it was a it was a white black conflict in Riverside Park, downtown Memphis. Probably a hundred people fighting. And my dad waded in by himself and started throwing people and yelling at it yelling at these guys to stop this. And then all these guys were dumbfounded, this crazy old guy. And then he gave him a lecture. It was incredible. He was an incredible man. But then at the end of his life, 
where I'd have to help him even to get to the bathroom or get to, get to the bed. The point is, there's Jesus is teaching us something at every turn when we realize we're powerless. And here's what I want to say about this. This gift of powerlessness is the only way you can overcome the addiction that we all have to try to control our lives. When we, when we talk about parenting, what is the number one addiction that we have with our kids? We want them to be great. We want them to, to be good. But somehow we want to control the outcome, and we can't. We can affect the outcome, right? We can be a part of it, but you can't control it. And so over the last years, if I enter this new phase and I think about this, I want to think about this idea that who wants to be old? Say you're going to stretch out your hands and have somebody else dress you or tell you where to go. Uh, my mom's 96. When she was 91, I told her she couldn't drive anymore. She was mad at me for three years. Every time I've talked to her on the phone, she says, you know, you don't let me drive anymore. I'm like, Mom, you, you, you backed out over three of your great-grandchildren's mailboxes, and you didn't know it, so you don't get to drive anymore. And she was, she was really mad about it. And so what does this look like tonight in Matthew? And this is where I've been living in this for the last three years thinking about this, and it's out of the Beatitudes. So I'm just going to take a few minutes and, and share this with you as my last, my last opportunity this week. So when Jesus saw the crowds in chapter 5, verse 1, he went up on a mountainside and sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And this is what he taught. He taught the blessed passage, this word blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Greek word here really is, is just wonderfully blessed. And if you ever go to Greece and hang out with people in Greece, you're going to find that tons of people have the name Macarius in the Greek language. Many of the uh, Orthodox Greek Orthodox leaders of the, the Greek Orthodox Church in the world have always had the name Macarius in their title. And this blessedness is the approval of God. It's the awareness that God blesses you along the way. It's what uh, John Eldridge in his book on a journey to manhood talks about the fact that every person, in order to become the person God wants them to be, needs to know that they are a beloved son or a beloved daughter of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what's been happening this week. That's what Gull Lake does is good or better than anybody in the whole world. These kids, your kids this week, are leaving here, and they know and the, the leaders have shown them that they are the beloved of God. And even if they forget that when they're teenagers, they're going to live that and experience that. So what does it mean to be powerless? That's what, I, that's what I want to outline for the next 15 minutes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember the word poor that we talked about? Patokos. It's to cower or cringe like a beggar. It's a poverty so deep that the person has no other option to live except by begging. About 11 years ago, Craig Mays left Kensington to go start Communitas Church in New York City, and um, they meet in the New York City Rescue Mission, and one of the leaders of the church now is a guy named Charles, and he had a, uh, he had a crack addiction, and he begged at the Port Authority in New York for 30 years. Came and spoke at our church a couple years ago. He's an amazing man. He's an amazing leader of the church now. And he says over 30 years at the Port Authority, he estimates that he begged from people about a million and a half dollars. That's pretty good, isn't it? 
That's what he he did nothing but beg. He worked full time begging to support his crack addiction, and he 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 felt like that's all. He had a poverty of spirit and addiction so deep that's all he could do. The bottom line of this is our emptiness and brokenness reminds us that we have no other option than to cry out to God for His mercy, His grace, and His strength. Part of it is when we realize who God is, we realize what we need. And I thought, who would willingly choose to be poor in spirit? Wouldn't you rather be great? I thought, all my life, even as a kid, I wanted to be great. I wanted to be brilliant and admired. And then you realize Jesus is inviting us to something different. And when you look at the Scripture, throughout the Scripture, when God uses people powerfully, it's almost always through their weakness. I love Gideon. Where Gideon in the Old Testament complains to God, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And what does God call him when he greets him? You remember? He calls him mighty warrior. He's like, no, I'm a loser. God says, no, you're a mighty warrior because you're my guy. The second thing I want you to see is not just to be poor in spirit, but it says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I think we're in a period of lament in the Christian church and in the West where we are grieving the loss of so many things that have been precious to us. This Greek word, pentheo, means to mourn, to, and it literally means to lean into the grief. Jesus is saying, you're blessed. You are exceedingly glad when you can lean into the pain of your life. And so it's counterintuitive because we don't want to do that. We want to run from that in our lives. We don't want to step into the loss and the brokenness and the grief. And you know what I lean into? You know, you know what I grieve all the time? I am still grieving the fact that I can't stop the hurt everywhere. I, I, I love the fact that we have 400,000 people with clean water in northwest Kenya among the Pokot tribe, but then I think, well, there's 600,000 that don't, right? And so you lament that. You lament all the children of all those villages that are just sitting in dusty, dusty ground. You think of the, you think of the, the mourning that the Reach Beyond team has had for 90 years, since 1930, that there are pockets, huge pockets, everywhere in the world of billions of people that have no idea that Jesus cared for them, that Jesus is alive, that he's the resurrected Savior, that he could give them meaning for this life and for the next, and that the grief and the brokenness of this world is not the end. And just for, to make a great connection to this, he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The word comfort is the word parakaleo. This is where we get the word paraklesis, which is the comforter, the Holy Spirit. He's like, he's like if you mourn, I, I'm going to step in, and I'm going to bring you comfort along the way. One of the most famous stories probably told out of World War II was of a guy named Yahil Dinur. He was a Holocaust survivor who testified against Adolf Eichmann in the Nuremberg War Trials of 1961. Uh, does anybody remember that? Anybody old enough to remember the Nuremberg War Trials? You'd have to be about 70 to probably remember this. Any of any the old, old, older? This is incredible. This is a cataclysmic moment in history. Something like if this happened in today's days, it would be unbelievable. And so during this trial, Dinur came into the courtroom he had to face Eichmann for the first time, not as a not as a prisoner of 
but as a, but as a person to testify against him, but as a, as a free man. But he didn't feel free. And I, I didn't live to see this, but I, I, I've, I know that this is somewhere on archive video. But when Danur faced Eichmann, he began to sob uncontrollably. Like just to weep and weep and weep. And people thought, people just assumed that he was overcome by, by the horror of meeting this monster and the terror. But what happened was, Dinor was to say later, is that when he saw Eichmann outside of the camp and in the sense of this trial, what he saw, he was overcome by Eichmann's ordinariness. He's just an ordinary guy. He's just a guy who puts his pants on one, one leg at a time, just like everybody else. Dinur said, I saw him, and I was afraid of myself. <gasps> I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like he. That was his exact phrasing. Later, Mike Wallace from 60 Minutes would summarize this by saying, Eichmann is in all of us. And that's part of what we need to grieve. We need to grieve our tendencies and our failures. And you know what the, you know what the, the people of the world are looking for from us as, as the church of Jesus? They are looking to see if we will mourn and lament and grieve our sin. Not their sin, but our sin. That's what we talked about earlier today, of the, the sin of judgmentalism or the sin of always being right or always having to, always having to correct our kids every day and, and repeating over and over to the point where our kids can't hear us anymore. Our kids in the world, our spouses, would be set free for us to lament and allow Jesus to begin to change that in us. And part of being in this community of Jesus Christ is we know the reality of ourselves and others. We know, like Denur, Yahil Denur, that we have Eichmann in us as well. And when we mourn, this is what, I, what we need and what we miss so often it allows us to take the mask of pretense off and start to be real. Okay, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This is uh, the word prous, which is just gentleness of spirit. This doesn't mean you're weak. It just means you have a gentle heart. When I think of my, my father, by the way, when I grew up in church, in Me church in Memphis, Tennessee, which had the worst music in the history of Christendom for 2,000 years. Uh, no church has ever had worse music than we did. And we would sing hymns, and we were terrible. And my dad, I can remember being five years old and watching my mom and dad, and uh, my dad especially, but my mom would too. She would choke up, but my dad would weep as we would sing hymns. People were always surprised by that gentleness of spirit. The same guy that would wait out in the Riverside Park and break up a gang fight of 100 people would weep with the singing of a hymn. And you dads that are out there, say, what, what possibly is the greatest gift you could give your family Do you leave Gull Lake this week? Huh. Might very well be gentleness of spirit. Man, just to be gentle. Be gentle. It's like uh, Paula, the verse we claimed when our babies were little. He, he gently he carries the little lambs close to his heart and gently leads those that are with young. This is the picture of the meekness of our Creator.
Wow. Amazing. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty nine, which was another section I would just have loved to have taught through, he says, come to me because I'm gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. That's the, the total image of meekness. We live in a very competitive culture, we lo- and I love competition like everybody else. But we, uh, Paul and I were talking with uh, my brother-in-law. Do you remember what Ham said? It's really interesting. My, our brother-in-law is an amazing guy, married to my sister who I talked about earlier today. He says, you know what's really crazy for us as people? We work uh, – Rogan and Gray, this is for you guys. This, this is something we'll talk about this fall. We were, we'll drag Bennett and some of the other guys in. We'll talk about this. But he says, you know what? We work so hard for our kids – to achieve and to do things that are absolutely meaningless in the people we hope they marry. Because who we hope they marry, we don't care if the people they marry are good athletes or great students. What we hope is that they'll marry people who love and care and sacrifice and keep commitments and be loyal to death. And yet we're always pushing our kids to come on, get, get out there in the soccer field, give it 100%. And, you know, and, we're, and what about this? And, and we're... And, Believe me, I know this room. I know, like like me, you're guilty of this. Could anybody just say, would anybody just nod by agreeing that you've got this competitive drive and you want your kids to be great? And you want, is that true or not? Okay, three of you. The rest are liars. Okay. This meekness, what if we brought into our lives this year? What if 2021-22 was a year of gentleness of spirit? The whole idea of the soft answer, turning away, turning away anger. Very cool. Okay, a couple more. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And look at these two words. What Jesus is saying is, blessed are you when you suffer hunger, where your hunger for God, it hurts. It'd be like you fasted for a week and your stomach's empty and you're weak and you're just, you're suffering for that. Or, where you feel the pain of thirst, which I honestly, I don't think I've only known it a few times in my life where I actually knew the real pain of thirst, where you, you could, couldn't swallow, you, your lip, your, the skin in your lips was starting to just tear off. I've only really never had that. But it says, this is what I, what I want you to long for me. And I thought, what do I hunger for? I hunger to watch sports on television. And, and I'll confess, because Paula was talking to a couple of couples here a couple of days ago, and she she told them that there are some Sundays where I'll have a game on the TV, a game on my iPad, and a game on my phone all at the same time, right? That's not very spiritual, is it? Because you get addicted to things that are fun, but they don't really matter. And I'm sure none of, none of you have ever done anything like that. Sure. But here Jesus calls us to say, I want you to hunger and thirst for me. The psalmist in Psalm 63 says... My soul longs for you. My body thirsts for you. Think of John when Jesus says uh, to the Samaritan woman, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. You know, the only people that want living water are people that are really hurting and really thirsty. Otherwise, you want other kinds of water. You want entertainment water, you know, or prestige water or financial well-being water. But when you're really hurting, you want the living water. And that's where God wants to bring us. Blessed are the merciful, 
for they will be shown mercy. Number verse 7. Basic meaning of mercy is pretty powerful. It's to give help to the wretched, to relieve the miserable. Mercy is showing compassion. Every encounter, show mercy. I, I mean that. So when you go, when, when you're back having a tough spot with your kids, before you say, how can I make this a teachable moment? I would encourage you to ask yourself, how do I show mercy in this moment? When you and your spouse are having a disagreement, instead of saying, before you even begin to work it through, to say, how can I operate, not with power, but with powerlessness, with gentleness of spirit, with the gift of mercy and the gift of compassion for what the other person is. I grew up in a family where no but was one word, or yes but. Both of those were one word in my family. It's not a, it's not a healthy way. It doesn't build for great stuff. Okay, I'm just going to pile on through these. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Katharos. This is the where it's a vine is cleansed by pruning. In other words, you, you've been when you're pure, you've been pruned by the, the the pain and the difficulty of life, but also of God's hand of saying, "I want to remove the stuff from your life that is not good for you." And this purity means a heart of unmixed devotion to God. When I think about that, I don't have it, but I want to have it. So much of this beatitude is I don't have it, but I want to have it as well because it says the pure in heart will see God. You remember what the disciples asked? They said, Jesus, and John, when he was teaching them, they said, show us. Jesus said, I and the Father one. They said, show us the Father. And he said, still don't you know me? You still don't know me? They still didn't see. They didn't see until they saw the risen Jesus. And that's where when we talked about the turning points to your kids, that there's some moment where they would experience the risen Jesus. And, and I bet you a bunch of them have experienced that this week, that Jesus must be alive. Blessed are the peacemakers. This is simple. It's just simply people that love peace. And then I'm coming to the end, number 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Blessed are you when people insult you persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. As far as we know, this is really the first time that Jesus promises to people that supernatural joy is going to meet them in the face of horrible persecution. He really hasn't explained this yet. He says, but for those of you that are going to follow me, you're going to experience character assassination. You're going to be criticized in an abusive way. You're going to be driven away from places where you thought you were welcome. And intentionally through deception, people are going to seek to destroy your reputation. He says, and when you do this, the literal meaning is be exceedingly glad. The Luke passage, Luke 6.23 says, leap for joy. Is that crazy? So when people are ripping you to shreds, if your sufficiency and well-being is in Jesus Christ, he says, leap for joy pretty awesome or we and this could be applied not just when you're reviled and insulted but when things just don't work out which is so often in our lives jesus says if you follow me the rewards will be great and so as i wrap up my moment on this on this incredible week which has been so full of wonderful conversations and joy and it's just been a joy for me as I've just had the time to study as well. When you look at these characteristics 
of this passage where it says rejoice and be glad because great is your reward. You think about this powerlessness. Look at it again. Because this is the kingdom worth your life. And I think this is the only kingdom that is ever going to attract the world. When I see the generation of 35 and under, they are not going to come to Christ through, through expressions of power and intimidation. They're going to come through people that are broken and hungry and thirsty before the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to look at this list one more time. Powerless. This is what Jesus says. You're poor in spirit. You mourn. You're meek. You're hungry and thirsty for God. You're merciful. And by the way, I, don't, I can't speak for you. I can only speak for me. But I tell you, I would much rather power up on others. Like way more, way more interesting than being merciful. But the way of Jesus is to show mercy, to love peace, to welcome persecution and insult and character assassination, to be glad in your low position. I remember a, a well-known teacher years ago said, to really follow Jesus, you have to understand that the way down is the way up. And people that think the way up is actually the way down. In a word, dependent on Jesus for every need. I think this is where Jesus is bringing me to this last year in such a beautiful, powerful way. And I don't really like it, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I, I, I really enjoyed creating and directing, and, but I'm eager to discover a new way of living with Jesus. And I will tell you this, he's going to ask every one of us to do this. Could be now, could be five years from now. It could be in your relationship with your spouse. I think powerlessness before your spouse could be the greatest way to heal a marriage. Just to be humble, to say, I, just, I want to learn from you, and I want to appreciate everything about you, and how God has revealed uh, himself to me through you. And so I shared this journey where I said it's right now. It actually started 28 years ago, January of 1993, when Paula said, hey, we, I told you. She said, I'm not going to divorce you. That's an incredible way to start a conversation. She said, but I don't see anything in this marriage for me. And you know what I did for two years? I argued with you. I'm like, what are you talking about? Let me tell you about this. And this, like, come on, this is great. And this is great. And this is great. And honestly, it took almost two years to finally go, okay. It's reality. I need to listen. I need to, I need to step into a place of powerlessness. I think that's where great marriages happen, where you just really humble yourself. Because you humble yourself before Jesus. You do that before your, your spouse. You do that before your kids. You do that before your friends. And let Jesus begin to do something unique in your life. You say, boy, that's messy. Heck yeah. It really is. It's really tough. And so I want to come out and pray for you one last time. And, uh, and I want to thank you. And some of you, I'll, I'll be in touch and making connections along the way. But I, I, want to, I want to pray for these guys first, Dave and Kathy. Lord, thank you that these two have li been living witnesses of a lifetime of trusting you.
of forsaking uh, the rights and the control of their own life to serve you and to be catalysts for your kingdom around the world. We pray for all the Reach Beyond team and the marvelous, unbelievable work that's happened for 90 years. And I can remember as a boy being so blessed by HCJB and thinking of the incredible work as they shortwave the gospel all across the world. And here we are, beneficiaries and recipients of that blessing. I also want to pray for uh, a, lot, a, lot of the, a lot of the men and women in this room are in Christian ministry. I want to pray for this, these guys with the Navigators and people with Collegiate, people leading, leading churches and having visions along the way of what you can do. And I want to pray, pray for my brother, Dan Kopp, who's been done such an incredible job following you with Kelly. And I just would pray that 21 and 22 would be just the richest, joyful, most joyful time of ministries. You've called him to teach and encourage people. And Lord, there's just so many, there's so many other men that are in the marketplace, just men and women that are serving in the marketplace and as coaches and do, doing incredible things. They're so special. They just have great hearts. They want to they see you honored. I want to pray too for people that are here that uh, have struggles in their homes, their marriages, their children, that are they're just burdened down like crazy, that Lord, you would bring them to a place of powerlessness where they say, Jesus, all I have all I have in heaven and on earth is you. All I have is you. And just to trust and to be available that you'd be working and working in these amazing people. Lord, this is, um, and I want to thank you for Gold Lake and for Ambush and Hoedown. I want to thank you for, the, for Paul Gordon, who blessed my life and, and humbled me 30 years ago when he was the, when he was the first person to, to send me a check for the launch of Kensington Church. <laughs> because he just, he wanted to be available to you and, and, and Lord, that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, not only living, but who have gone on into your presence that make us inspired to live full tilt for you, to follow you, to trust you, to give up the rights to ourselves and live in this place where you truly have control of the steering wheel of our lives. Thank you so much in Jesus' name. Amen.